Well, good morning, Project Church. It's a pleasure to once again uh, be invited to come and open God's Word with you. Uh, This morning, we're actually going to be picking up where we left off uh, in mid-2019 in a series called He's Still Here, where we've been working our way through the book of Acts. If you were with us back in 2019, we actually made our way through the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. And what we're going to do over the next couple of months is work our way through chapters 13 through to 16. So we're picking things up in Acts chapter 13 this morning. So If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts 13, and I'm going to begin this morning by reading verses 1 through 12. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit, And all villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for those of you who don't know me... um, It's actually pretty well documented that I'm a pretty big cricket fan. You've only got to follow me on Facebook to realise that. In fact, at 11.30 this morning after the service, that's precisely what I'll be doing. I'll be playing cricket down at Queen's Park. Great way to start a holiday. Uh, You see, I've loved the game of cricket for most of my life. And the thing I love about it most, I think, is that it is a game of meticulous precision. I love, personally, watching a batsman craft out an innings over a long period, carefully watching the ball through the air and off the seam, judiciously selecting the right shots to find his next run. I personally love that. Most people in the room probably think that's like watching paint dry, but for me, this is actually something I genuinely love. But you don't actually have to be a cricket coach to recognise that there's actually a giveaway sign that you can pick really easily when a batsman is shortly going to lose his wicket and join his teammates back in the pavilion. Do you know what that sign is? He gets stuck on the crease. You see, getting stuck on the crease is when a batsman is unable to effectively move his feet and he becomes dangerously immobile. He struggles to make big intentional moves forward and what happens is he struggles to take the game on and very quickly it becomes detrimental for him and for his teammates. And sadly, this is actually a characteristic that's often shared by local churches. Sometimes local churches can get a little bit stuck on the crease. Instead of making intentional moves to see the gospel go forward, sometimes local churches get really stationary. 
They adopt a posture of introspection and they lower their eyes onto their own local concerns, concerns that are often very important, but it can get to the point where our mantra to go and disciple the nations goes missing. I've heard it said this way, churches can spend more time talking about their seating capacity than their sending capacity. And rather than being a battleship that launches gospel aircraft off the deck, they become more like a cruise liner only concerned with the comfort of those on board. We get stuck on the crease, as it were. But as we enter the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, we encounter a very significant moment in church history where the church resolved that it was time for the gospel to break out of of its Palestinian confines to board a ship and cross the Mediterranean and be preached to a Gentile audience. Now granted, there had been up until this point, if you're tracing the book of Acts, bits and pieces of Gentile targeted ministry, but nothing really that full scale. I mean, we had the conversion of Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10 with the what they call the Gentile Pentecost, but when you peer closely at those events, you'll realize that they took place in Caesarea. You're still on home soil at that point. You've really got the home ground advantage, even though you're ministering to a Gentile. And let's not forget that before his conversion, Cornelius was a God-fearer, which meant he spent a lot of time in Jewish synagogues. He wasn't an out-and-out pagan. Or in Acts chapter 8, after Saul ravages the church in Jerusalem, yes, some Christians did scatter as far as Cyprus, but when they got there, Acts chapter 11 tells us that when they arrived, they only ever preached to fellow Jews, never Gentiles. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The gospel has already gone to Jerusalem. We saw that in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. The gospel's already gone to Judea and Samaria. We saw that in Acts 8 through 12. But it's in Acts chapter 13 that we see the gospel begin to go to the ends of the earth on a full, with full-scale intentionality. You see, Acts chapter 13 begins what is typically referred to as Paul's first missionary journey. It's a journey that took place between the years AD 46 and AD 49. And we pick up the story there in verses 1 through 3. Let's read it again. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, I'm sure you've probably noticed in verse 1 that Luke appears to be almost unnecessarily um, bringing us up to speed on who exactly was at this particular prayer meeting. He's quite earnest about it. He seems to be laboring the point. Why would he do that? He wants us to pay attention for some reason to the names and the backgrounds of those in attendance. Well, we've got Barnabas. Now, we know he was a Jew specifically. He was from the tribe of Levi, but his original birthplace was actually Cyprus the very place where he and Paul were about to travel. He would have had very good local knowledge of Cyprus, and this is the kind of guy that's handy to have around if you're building a missions team, someone who's got good local knowledge. Next in line, we've got Simeon, who's also called Niger. That word is a Latin word that literally translates black. It's not racist, that's literally just what that word originally meant. And he was a gentleman probably with very dark skin. He was probably African, like many of the early church fathers were. 
We've got Lucius. Now, it says he's from Cyrene, but Lucius is a Latin name, which means he probably grew up around Roman culture. Then we've got Menaean. Now, he was probably a Hellenistic Jew, but what's fascinating about him is that it says that he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, lifelong friend there might actually better translate foster brother, as if to say he, he grew up in the same home with this guy. And the Herod that he grew up with is actually Herod Antipas. That's the Herod who oversaw the killing of John the Baptist and the trial of Jesus Christ. He grew up with the guy, which means that he's from the aristocracy. And here he is just hanging out with a bunch of garden variety, ordinary Christians in Antioch. And then Luke finishes by mentioning that we've got Saul, the former Christian killing Pharisee turned apostle. And so if you're wondering, what's Luke up to here in verse 1? Why is he laboring the point about who was present? I think his sole purpose here is to show us the ethnic and socio-economic diversity of the leadership in Antioch. Okay, This is a cosmopolitan church ready to preach to a cosmopolitan audience. And I think it's actually a pretty punchy point of application straight off the bat for us this morning is that if we're going to be a church that ministers to the nations... We have to make sure that the gospel has landed in our hearts to such a degree that the dividing walls of hostility between race and class are smashed to the ground. Una momento. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Listen, if we can't sort that sort of stuff out locally, then what on earth makes us think that we'll be effective ministers to the nations? Paul said in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I skim read a quick book by uh, the Nine Marks team on missions this week, and one of the points of advice given was that if you are interested in foreign missions, probably one of the things you should do first is engage with some local internationals. Try uh, your hand and your heart in that space before you cross the sea. Food for thought. But not only is this church an ethnically diverse church, they also have a plurality of very gifted leaders. Luke doesn't elaborate on this point much in verse 1, but he does say that these five men are gifted teachers, gifted prophets, or, or at least some combination of both. And they're all in one church. In sporting terms, this is like the 2001 Brisbane Lions midfield or the 1992 men's US basketball team. And this is the dream team right here. Whoever the list manager is at the church at Antioch needs to start working for the St Kilda Football Club. Look how well they've recruited. I mean, this is a dream team. If you look back to Acts chapter 11, you'll read that Paul and Barnabas taught the Christians in this church for a whole year. And before they arrived, Lucius was there and he did a lot of preaching in Antioch, which led to mass conversion of a lot of the Hellenists who were in that region. This is an amazingly gifted leadership team. And the temptation for a church like this is to just say, let's just stay as we are. Let's just keep building locally. Let's keep setting ourselves up. We'll we'll buy some more chairs. We'll recruit and appoint some more staff. And let's just build the Antiochian ministry enterprise. That is the temptation for a church like this. Keep building. But what do we find them doing? Verse 2. Worshipping the Lord and fasting. In other words, they've... They've postured themselves in such a way, together with the whole church, saying, Lord, give us direction. What would you have us do next? Oh, Lord, you said the gospel would go to the end of the earth. Where will you send us? 
Lord, we're so desperate for your direction and guidance, we're even willing to forego food. They're not stuck on the crease. They're clearly not a cruise liner. They're eager to see the fulfillment of the Great Commission, even if it means losing good people. This is at least part of the reason why we've implemented a monthly prayer and worship service here at the project. We want to corporately posture ourselves for his direction and how we can partner with him for the global cause of the gospel. We want to seek his face. Was that a plug to increase attendance? Yeah, you got me. And as they were praying, fasting and seeking the Lord's direction, look what happens next. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, how, how exactly did the Holy Spirit say this exactly? Some people get a bit nervous reading this text. Well, the text doesn't specifically tell us, but if you held a gun to my head, I would take a stab and say that he probably did it by means of one of the gifted prophets who were in the room. Allow me to quickly cite a definition of prophecy from Sam Storms. He says it this way. He says, the Holy Spirit supernaturally discloses information, facts or insights not otherwise available by natural avenues of knowledge. Now, there is a long discussion and or debate that can be had about the gift of prophecy. Me and the community group leaders have been doing a fair bit of that already uh, this year. If you have any questions about that, feel free to come and chat to me in two weeks' time when I get back from holidays. But at the end of the day, when you, when you boil it all down, we, we need to have a category stuff like this that we read about in the book of Acts. It pops up time and time again. I went to school with a fellow whose dad was a pastor and subsequently a missionary. His name's Greg. He was a mentor of mine in my youth. And one day Greg was praying earnestly, seeking the Lord's direction and knowing Greg, he was probably fasting too. He was, he was one of those guys that was up at 4.30 praying most mornings. He, he was one of those, right? And suddenly the, the Holy Spirit gave him this this vision of sorts, it was so vivid for him, it was, whether it was in his mind's eye or quite literally, I can't remember the details, but so vivid. But what it was, it was this bizarre Y-shaped thing, almost like a giant capital Y, just appeared in front of him. And he didn't know what it was. He was probably asking God why he had the vision, right? But I can't remember whether it was days or weeks later, but he was flipping through a map of Africa, Sometime later, only to discover that on the east coast of Africa, there is a nation shaped like a weird capital Y, Mozambique. The vision that he had was of the nation Mozambique. And for decades now, he has been a missionary in Mozambique, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and making Jesus' name known amongst the nations. Since then, he's worked in other nations too. We need to be reminded when we read texts like this that the Holy Spirit still works like that today. Do you remember the Apostle Peter's sermon in Acts 2, verse 17? And in the last days, that is to say the church age that you and I live in, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. There's a sense in which what we read here should be normative at some level. But having said all of that, there's also a human dimension to missionary direction too, isn't there? Look at verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they, the church, laid their hands on them and sent them off. Let me ask you this morning... 
Who sent Paul and Barnabas to Cyprus? Was it the Holy Spirit or was it the church? And the answer, of course, is both. Thank you, Linda. (laughs) You see, to play the two off against each other creates something of a false dichotomy. Verse 4 says they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. But here in verse 3, there's some kind of local commissioning going on with the laying on of hands. And what this highlights for us is that time-tested principle that when you're appointing people to ministry, whether it's missionary work or pastoral work, whatever it may be, you have to have both internal calling and external calling both at play at the same time. I first learned about these categories listening to a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones in his lectures on the call to ministry. He said that countless times he would have excited, aspiring young men come up to him saying that they wanted to be preachers, uh, that the Holy Spirit had supposedly given them the internal witness that that's what they were to spend their life doing. But as Lloyd-Jones spoke with these aspiring men and he got to know them a little bit, he recognized that, sadly, they didn't have the competencies. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that such men must be able to teach. But this guy, as zealous and keen as he was, was no teacher. And Lloyd-Jones couldn't affirm this guy's supposed calling. Or it can happen the other way. Sometimes someone can be incredibly gifted. But if they don't play host to any kind of internal conviction that this is where the Lord is calling me, then don't bother. When it comes to commissioning missionaries, church planters and the like, you have to have the internal witness of the Spirit and the external affirmation of your local church, especially from the local church leaders. But as we do this, we also need to be on guard for the fact that our discernment isn't perfect. Okay? And we're probably going to drift in one of two directions. I love the way John Stott put it. A couple of tendencies he warns us about. He says the first tendency is the tendency to individualism by which a Christian claims direct personal guidance by the Spirit without any reference to the church. That can be dangerous. But the second is the tendency to institutionalism, by which all decision-making is done by the church without any reference to the Spirit. It becomes too formal. And I think these principles are also important with respect to God's timing and discerning when is it the right time to move forward. Do you remember it was all the way back in Acts chapter 9 verse 15 when Paul was first converted that he received his commission personally by Christ to go to the Gentiles. But it doesn't get affirmed corporately as being the appropriate time to do so until now, probably over 12 years later. A pastor on the Gold Coast used to say that in the local church there are those that just went, but then there are those that are sent. And listen, if the Lord is stirring your heart towards the mission field, let's be the latter category. Let's be people who are sent by our church. So Paul and Barnabas are sent off with John Mark as their assistant. They set sail across the Mediterranean to the island of Cyprus, which on a good day you could actually see from the coast. They worked their way through what probably would have been a 90-mile journey from Salamis to Paphos, preaching in different synagogues as they went. That was typically Paul's missionary strategy. He would start in the synagogue where there was lots of God-fearers and then work his way out over towards the Gentiles. But between verses 6 and 12, Luke wants to highlight for us one particular story that serves for us as a potent reminder when the gospel crosses into new territory and it's preached to new hearers the collateral realities come with it that we're going to encounter new opponents. You can't look at missionary work through rose-coloured lenses. 
Now, the text doesn't say how, but Paul gains an opportune audience with a highly ranked Roman official. This guy is the proconsul of Cyprus. Now, what's a proconsul? Well, in ancient Rome, some of the the provinces were overseen directly by the emperor, and they were overseen by an imperial legate, but the others were overseen directly by the Senate. And those that were overseen by the Senate had a proconsul uh, appointed to uh, rule them. Paul has an audience with this guy. It's probably the modern equivalent, equivalent of having a meeting with Paul Antonio, our mayor. That, that's probably roughly the ballpark idea of what Paul has in mind here. Now, commentators highlight the significance of this moment because this is Paul's first encounter with a sympathetic Roman official. This is a big deal on the, on the chart. This is a gospel-spreading opportunity on steroids. Think about it. If you, if you get the Roman officials converted... What implications do you think that will have for the surrounding area? Do you think it might just water down the persecution a little bit? Probably. Do you think it might open up new pathways for the gospel? Absolutely. But as always, Satan wants to get in the way. Paul said to the church in Corinth, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And it's on this occasion that the veiling work of the enemy came in the form of a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, we're meant to read that and get a little bit of a shock because according to the Old Testament, the word magician and Jewish should never really be in the same sentence. Okay, It's quite the paradox. Jewish magician is like saying obese personal trainer. They just shouldn't go together. It just doesn't work. In Deuteronomy 18, uh, this is what Moses said. He said, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. But somehow this Jewish man, Bar-Jesus, has weaseled his way into Gentile culture on an island where he can probably get away with it. He's a long way from Jerusalem. And he kind of puts himself forward as something of a prophet or a fortune teller who can give wise counsel to those he's assigned to. But what he's really doing is being a schemer who leverages his proximity with the proconsul for his own gain. This sort of thing was quite common in the ancient world. And somehow he's got himself into a position where the proconsul is convinced that this is the sort of guy you want to have around. If you've actually seen the movie uh, Lord of the Rings Two Towers, it's a little bit like Grimer Wormtongue uh, poisoning the mind of Thaden, the King of Rohan, for all the Lord of the Rings fans out there. It's a little bit like that. He's sort of a court wizard. And he notices that this fellow Paul comes along preaching about Jesus. And this magician rightly perceives that his livelihood is about to be threatened. So what does he do? He gets in the way. And he does everything he can to inhibit the spread of the gospel from reaching the proconsul's ears. He's protecting himself. Now, you might be hearing all this and thinking, really, Jaden? Are you preaching from the Bible or a fantasy novel this morning? You're making it sound like the first missionary journey was conducted at Hogwarts. I mean, I really don't have a category for all this magician stuff. Listen, I... I hear you, but there's a couple of things I'm going to say in response. Firstly, the guy writing this account is no simpleton. He is an incredibly well-educated doctor writing a very reliable historical account. The fact that he is aware 
that there is a proconsul overseeing Cyprus and not someone uh, who's directly overseen by the emperor shows he is paying incredible attention to the historical details. Time and time again, people have tried to criticize Luke's historicity, but time and time again, he keeps proving them wrong. This is a reliable historical account. Secondly, the proconsul is described in verse 7 as a man of intelligence. He too is no simpleton. The fact that by Jesus has gained the confidence of this Roman official only highlights the subtleties of our enemy. You see, sometimes us Westerners can be caught up in the enemy's tricks without knowing exactly what it is that we're into. If you think Ouija boards are a cute game, you're kidding yourself. The Enlightenment has not served us well in that regard. And then thirdly, you need to know that this kind of thing still happens today and can be particularly pronounced in Eastern cultures. I was preaching at a church on the Gold Coast last week and before the service, they played a a video interview of another Acts 29 uh, pastor who's in Malawi. Um, His name's Pastor Robert Manda. And when he was asked about, hey, look, what what can we be praying for for you over there in Malawi? Like, what's, what's happening with the churches over there? How can we be partnering with you in prayer? One of the things he said that he would love prayer for is that one of the things they were currently facing is that they would have been sending out church planters into the rural parts of Malawi, out in the African jungle, which would be a hard enough place to plant a church as it is, surely. But one of the things that these jungle church planters are currently wrestling with is that the locals are practicing witchcraft. This stuff still happens. They're planning churches to see the gospel go forward and they're experiencing front-footed demonic opposition. Do you have a category for that? Paul said to the church in Ephesus, in chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But perhaps for many of us, part of the reason why we've never encountered this kind of opposition is because we've never really dared to follow Jesus in a way that's been at great cost to us. We've never crossed the Mediterranean, as it were. Addressing a Western audience, Pastor Kent Hughes put it this way. He says, There is a cost to sincere service for Christ. Never share your faith and you will never look like a fool. Never stand for righteousness on a social issue and you will never be rejected. Never walk out of a theatre because a movie or play is offensive and you will never be called a prig. Never practice consistent honesty in business and you will not lose the trade of a not-so-honest associate. Never reach out to the needy and you, you will never be taken advantage of. Never give your heart and it will never be broken. Never go to Cyprus And you will never be subjected to a dizzy, heart-convulsing confrontation with Satan. So what's Paul going to do with this magician who tries to inhibit the spread of the gospel? How is he going to respond to his new opponent? Look at verses 9 and 10. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Commenting on these verses, the late R.C. Sproul says that clearly Paul had not taken the time to read How to Win Friends and Influence People. Good comment. But Paul, who hasn't had a name change, just to correct that, this is just the use of his Roman name now that he's in Gentile world. Paul 
embraces a fully orb view of ministry, which means although he will spend 95% of his time searching for and caring for God's sheep, he doesn't hesitate for a moment to spend the other 5% of his time shooting down walls. John Calvin said it this way, a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. Now, it's worth noting at this point that the name Bar-Jesus translates as either meaning son of salvation or son of Jesus. That's what Bar-Jesus translates as. So when Paul calls Bar-Jesus son of the devil, he's actually attacking his very name. You call yourself son of Jesus, I call you son of the devil. Pretty full on. But verse 9 makes it clear that he did this filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that one land for you? Oh, I'm sure we're all very comfortable with what the Holy Spirit had to say back in verse 2. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I've called them. Hallelujah. But how about verse 9? How's that one tracking for you? Do you have a category for speech like this? Paul does. You see, Paul knows that the spread of the gospel is of the utmost importance, that any attempt to silence it is clearly the work of the enemy. And at the end of the day, we need to recognize that Paul's words here are completely in sync with the kinds of words that our Lord Jesus said himself. Look at John 8, where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, verse 42 to 45. This is Jesus speaking, tender Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Listen to this. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Paul did not hand bar Jesus a welcome pack or invite him to Project in 60. But as God's anointed prophet, he looks him right in the eye and says, Sir, get out of the way. And what follows is the manifest judgment of God. And you'll notice that it comes with something of a humiliating and ironic overtone. This man who claimed to give sight and wisdom to the proconsul is now totally blind and asking others to guide him. Quite ironic and humiliating. Alluding to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, John Stott comments that God's judgment for him was fitting. For those who put darkness for light and light for darkness forfeit the light they originally had. However, despite this somewhat terrifying manifestation of God's lordship and power, look at the glorious result of this encounter. Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, I must admit, I've become a little bit fed up reading commentaries by Reformed theologians, as much as I love them, when they're commenting on the book of Acts, because they usually get to verses like this, and they just go galloping in at 100 miles an hour, spilling all their ink, warning us about the snare of overemphasizing and becoming obsessed with the miraculous signs of the kingdom. That's most of what they write. Now, I hear their concern. It is possible for us to spend so much time looking at the signs of the kingdom that we fail to end up at the destination to which the signs point, namely the king. That's possible. 
They're totally right. Jesus did warn us in Luke 10, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Yes, we have to be on guard, but how about we let the verse stand on its own two feet for a moment? There is something that the proconsul has seen and something that he has heard, which have both contributed to his conversion. It says the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, he saw a sign, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. When the signs of the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom go together, they are a potent force that no one can mess with. Why separate them? We should pray for signs and wonders today. Hopefully not one quite like this. I prefer a healing. But we should pray for signs and wonders today not to replace our proclamation, never, but to accompany our proclamation. And our proclamation is that most astonishing teaching of the Lord that has clearly captivated the heart of Sergius Paulus, and that is the good news of the gospel. That Christ entered history to redeem sinners like you and me unto himself. He lived that perfect sin-free life that we couldn't live. He died on the cross in our place for our sin and rose again on the third day. And he says, you cannot save yourself by climbing your way up to me with your good performance. But simply believe in my good performance on your behalf and you will be saved. That is that astonishing message of the gospel that has captivated the heart of Sergius Paulus. Why doesn't the band come and join me? As we've considered this passage today, I can't help but wonder, what what has the Lord stirred up in each of you this morning? I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I'd bet that when the COVID travel restrictions lift, I suspect we're going to see a handful of people commissioned out by this church and sent out to the foreign missions field. I, 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 bet, I bet that'll happen. We're probably going to see some overseas church planning. And then for some of us, as we've listened today, we've, we've rightly discerned that we're probably not the ones who are going to go and cross the Mediterranean ourselves, but I hope that we can recognize today that Even if our ministries are more local, it is our collective responsibility as a local church to corporately lift our vision and develop something of a global consciousness. If you're not involved in the going, then you will most certainly be involved in the sending. 3 John 5-8 puts it this way. Beloved, It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Here's the kicker. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you that in the all-sufficient deposit of Scripture you have given us, you include those early narratives of the first Christians in the early church. We thank you all for all the learning that we can gain from them. And Lord, as we come to Acts 13, we see them get ready to cross the Mediterranean. And Lord, you are still building your church today. You still want to see that beautiful message of the gospel reach the nations. 
And Lord, your sending isn't finished. Lord, would you stir every heart this morning, whether we're involved in the going or the sending. Would you give us visions and dreams for what you would have us do, both as individuals and corporately as the Project Church. Lord, we recognize that your mission field is contested, that we will face opponents, whether it's magicians or secularism or whatever it may be. But Lord, we thank you that you have conquered the occult. You've trampled on the head of the serpent. And we thank you that we carry your authority wherever we go and that you're with us wherever we go. Lord, would you give specific visions where the Great Commission would become a personal assignment to each of us that we might be partners in the truth. In your name we pray. Amen.